Let's hear God's word from the book of Acts, chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence." Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen. We'll end our reading there in Acts 2, verse 36. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, open to our hearts today this wonderful portion of your word. We pray, Lord, that as we consider Peter's preaching, we would hear those words with fresh power, with fresh grace. Lord, we pray that we too would be cut to the heart for our sins, but that we would rejoice because whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Oh Lord, help us then to see our exalted Lord and Christ, to rejoice in him and to find great joy and comfort in this truth that it was not possible for death to keep him down. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you were looking for one passage of scripture to basically give you the heart of the Apostles' Creed, that second section where we confess who the Lord Jesus is, 
and what he's done for our salvation, you might well turn to Acts chapter 2. You notice how Peter preaches all of these things together. It's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has come. Well, Peter preaches about that. He preaches about that in connection with the exaltation of Christ. Being by the right hand of God exalted, Christ has shed forth what they are now witnessing of the coming of the Holy Spirit. But who was the Christ who was exalted and who sent the Spirit? Well, it was the Christ who was first raised. And why did he need to be raised? Because they had wickedly crucified him. You see, all of those events go together. We never understand the resurrection or the ascension of Christ without reference to his death, but also we never understand them without reference to their fulfillment in the day of Pentecost, in the coming of the Holy Spirit. All of those redemptive acts go together. Any of them would be incomplete without the other. And so I'm not upset that on Easter Sunday, when we're focused on the resurrection, the catechism reminded us again of the sufferings of Christ. That's okay. Those things go together. Whenever we're talking about the resurrection, we're remembering what came before, just as whenever we're considering the passion, the death of Christ, we don't stop there. We remember what happened next. All of these things are very closely Related, You cannot understand Pentecost without understanding the ascension of Christ. And you can track that back down the chain of redemptive events. So Peter preaches about all of it. He preaches about the life of Christ. He preaches about the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and now also the coming of the Holy Spirit. But for today, we want to especially focus on what he says about the resurrection of Christ. On Friday, we considered verse 23, how Christ being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, the people to whom Peter was speaking had taken by lawless hands, had crucified and put to death. Now today we come to the next part of that sentence, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And if you just look at that verse, you see that there are really three assertions. Assertion number one, God raised him up. Assertion number two, he loosed the pains of death. Assertion number three, it was not possible that Christ should be held by death. And those are our three points for this morning's sermon. Point number one, God raised him up. Resurrection is God's action. Now, that is very frequent in the New Testament. Again and again, it speaks of God who raises the dead or God who raised up our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep in Hebrews chapter 13, for instance. And sometimes it's specified that it's God the Father who raises him up. A lot of times in the New Testament, when you just see God, if you look in the context, you'll see that it's almost certainly a reference to God the Father. Now, of course, Jesus also says that he lays down his life and he has power to take it again. So you can say that the son is active in the resurrection. Or in Romans chapter 8, Paul makes a comparison that if the spirit of the one who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in us, he'll also raise us up by his spirit 
which tells you that the Holy Spirit was active in the resurrection as well. So when it says that God raised him from the dead, it means God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Resurrection is an external work. It's something that takes place outside of God's being, and all of God's external works are undivided. Whatever God does, the Trinity does, because God is the Trinity. Now, it's also true that some works have a particular appropriation, that they have a termination on one person rather than another. So we could say that Jesus was raised from the dead in a way that we couldn't say that the Father or the Holy Spirit were raised from the dead. Resurrection is God's action. Resurrection has to do with the human nature of Christ, but it is the person of the Son who experiences that raising action as well as who is active in it. Now, that's a lot of technical theology all of a sudden on a Sunday morning. You weren't prepared for that, were you? You weren't expecting that. But this is important to be clear in our language, to be clear in our conceptions. The God we worship is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Son became incarnate. So what we say about Jesus is true of God the Son. And unless we're able to make some of those distinctions, sometimes we accidentally say something we shouldn't. And accidentally having the wrong ideas here can lead us to uncertainty or can even lead us into error. So the main application here is just don't make a mistake. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God raised Jesus. Does that mean just the Father and not the Son? No. Does that mean just the Father and Son and not the Holy Spirit? No. All were active in resurrection. But you wouldn't say that the Father rose from the dead. You wouldn't say that the Spirit rose from the dead. You only say that about the Son. Why? Because only the Son has a human nature that is capable of death. And without death, you don't have any resurrection. So God, all three persons, are active in the resurrection. But one person, because of the human nature is also a subject, is also passive in the resurrection. So far so good? That makes sense to everybody? Okay. Resurrection is God's action. Now, having explained a little bit of the background to that, I think we should also notice just quickly some of what that means. Who has power over death? Who can bring someone back? God is active in the resurrection because this does take omnipotence. No smaller power than God's power can accomplish this. Paul puts it as the standard of power in Ephesians chapter 1. He talks about how God works in us according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The creation of the world and the resurrection of Christ are the two great standing proofs that God can do anything. But then Paul makes a comparison to a third action. That is the action of God in raising us from the dead spiritually, in giving us new life, in regeneration, to use the technical language, or in causing us to be born again. How do you know God is omnipotent? How do you know God is all-powerful? Because he made the world, 
because Jesus rose from the dead and because there are people whose hearts are changed, whose eyes are opened, who believe the gospel. Every Christian is a proof that God is all-powerful. Because if God were not omnipotent, none of us would believe. None of us would confess our sins and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us would call upon the name of the Lord. You are a proof of God's boundless power. So is the resurrection. Well, that gives us encouragement. You see everything that's arrayed against us. Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. That might be bad enough, right? I mean, we might be defeated by flesh and blood. But flesh and blood isn't even our problem. Our problem is principalities and powers. Our problem is spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Well, what am I going to do about that, realistically? But there's an omnipotent power. There's a resurrection power that has already started its work in my life. God raised Jesus from the dead. Therefore, we can be brave. God raised Jesus from the dead. Therefore, we can be calm and confident. God raised Jesus from the dead. Therefore, we can return to the conflict without fear, without hesitation. Life is overwhelming. Problems are many. Your own heart betrays you. But God raised Jesus from the dead. You can get back in there. You can try again because God raised Jesus from the dead. Resurrection is God's action. But we need to move on. What is resurrection? Well, there'd be more than one way to define it. But notice how Peter explains that here. God raised Jesus up having loosed the pains or the sorrows of death. So what is resurrection? Well, it's a loosening of the pains of death. In other words, the image here is of death as a jailer or as a prison, depending on whether you want to take it as being a place or a person. But death is something that brings you into bondage. Death is something that holds you down. And death is something that holds you down in a miserable way. The word that is used here for pains only appears four times in the New Testament. In the New Testament. There's only one, sorry. That was, that was a slip of the tongue. There's only one New Testament, just to be clear. It's used four times in the singular New Testament. In the other places where it's used, it has sort of a future reference, and it seems to speak almost of birth pains, of pains that are preliminary to something else. But here I think the imagery is of the intensity of pain. This is a rare word because it's such a strong word. In other words, what kind of pain does death have? That seems like a silly question. Death has all kinds of pain, doesn't it? Death is an extremely painful and extremely miserable reality. And the pain, the misery of that reality fell upon Christ. Well, think about it in these terms. What is death? Well, death is when your soul no longer animates your body. What should be together, what should be united, is torn apart. There's this separation between soul and body. That's why the body then becomes a corpse. It's not animated. There is no soul to give it life. Well, that's painful. And then, of course, you can think about death also in terms of 
separation from God. Well, the Lord Jesus experienced that when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is the worst pain. That is the most tremendous pain. Now, the Lord Jesus experienced both of those pains and the concomitant sorrows and discomforts that go along with them. But he was raised up. Those pains were undone. And of course, since those pains were undone in his case, we can have great confidence that those pains have been or will be undone in our case as well. We too were separated from God. We were alienated from the life that is in God, being strangers to the covenants of promise. We were by nature children of wrath, even as others. That alienation, that deathly pain... God has already dealt with. He's overcome it in the cross of Christ. He has caused us to be born again. He has joined us to Christ once more. So that pain has already been dealt with. And so we no longer fear that separation. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the other pains, either pains that are like death or pains that are preliminary to death, we don't have to fear that pain, that separation, that sorrow or pain or bondage has already been undone. Well, in our case, too, the separation of soul and body will be undone. We still will most likely experience it unless the Lord Jesus returns first, right? But it will be undone. It will be overcome. Neither we nor our loved ones will be held in that division, in that unnatural separation forever. As God undid death in the resurrection of Christ, he will undo death in our case, in the case of of all we know who love the Lord, who died in the faith of Christ. And that leads us to the final consideration here. God loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that Christ should be held by death. The idea of held there is seized, grabbed. It's used for arrested. It's also used for held firmly. Like when Paul says, hold the traditions which you've been taught. He uses the same word. It's not a light hold. It's not, well, I'll barely touch it with my finger, and if it slips away, it slips away. It's grabbed. It's hung on to. It wasn't possible for death to hold on to Christ. Why not? Well, I think we can give at least three reasons for that. The first reason is because of God's decree. It wasn't God's plan that Christ should be held by death. And you notice that's what Peter highlights right here. He explains what he just said. It was not possible that Christ should be held by death. For, here he's giving the reason, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand that I may not be moved. Therefore my heart rejoiced, my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. David here speaks in the person of his greater son. He bears a witness that will be fulfilled, that will be true in Christ. 
So it had already been predicted, it had been prophesied that Christ would die, but would not be left dead. So in keeping his promise, in carrying out the guarantee already given by his word, in executing his plan, it was not possible that Christ would be retained, that Christ would be held under by death. His death was in fulfillment of God's plan, as we saw on Friday. His resurrection also. If that part of the plan had to be fulfilled, well, so did the next part. God's plan, God's purpose, God's decree does not fail. But we can say more than that. We can also say that Christ could not be held under by death because of Christ's absolute innocence. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to the one who judges righteously. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Pilate found no just reason to condemn him. There was nothing that made the Lord Jesus guilty. There was nothing that exposed him to death. Now, why does death happen? Well, you remember what God said to Adam in the Garden of Eden. In the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die, or dying you will die, as the expression is in Hebrew. Or Paul explains this as well. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, verse 23. So the Lord Jesus died, but that was very anomalous. He had no sins to imprison him in death. He was not a lawful captive. He was not legitimate prey for death. Death had no right to hold him because death had no claim on him because he had never broken the law. That's how it worked. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Why do people die? Well, they die because we are all guilty, because we are all sinners. Why did Jesus die? He had no sin, and so he couldn't be kept under. Well, he died under the weight of our sins. But since he had no personal sin of his own, death had no personal claim on him. Since he died in our place, since his death was of infinite worth, his death also dealt with the problem of our sin. It answered it. It meant that the law had been completed, made whole. God's stolen honor was restored. And so death couldn't keep Christ under because death only has a claim on the unrighteous. But Christ has satisfied all righteousness. He satisfied all righteousness by keeping the law completely. But then he's also satisfied all righteousness by suffering the full penalty of the law against our sin. Death has to relinquish its claim. Death has to let him go because there's no law to keep Christ down. The strength of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin. Death has power only through sin. And sin has power only where the law is not whole, only where it's been broken. Christ restored 
that wholeness. And so death could not keep him down. That's why in the resurrection of Christ, we see a glorious proof that he has dealt with our sin. Christ died under the weight of our sin. Had Christ remained dead, that would have meant that our sin was too much for him. He wasn't able to overcome it. He wasn't able to take care of it. But Christ didn't stay dead. Christ rose. And so our sin, all our sin, is gone. It has been dealt with. If it hadn't been dealt with, he would not have been able to rise. But he did deal with it. And so death could not hold him because death had no legal claim upon him. There's still one more reason why death was powerless to hold Christ, and that is in light of his identity. Now, for this, we need to look at another sermon by Peter, but it's just over the page, Acts chapter 3. Let's read from verse 14. Acts 3.14, But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead. Now notice that contrast quickly. They asked for a murderer, somebody who had forfeited his life by his own behavior. They asked for him to be spared. They asked for him to be given life. To die in his place, they asked for someone who was perfectly innocent, but not just perfectly innocent. He calls him the prince or the author, the source of life. Now, when you kill the prince of life, do you think that's the end? Well, if death were stronger than life, it would be. But it isn't. Because of who he is. Because he is the light that was the life of men. Because he is the author of all life. Because he is the one who first brought life into the world. Because he is the true and living God. The Lord Jesus could not be held down by death. Death is a fearful enemy. Death is the last enemy. But death is no match for the Son of God. Death is no match for the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not possible for Christ to be held by death in light of God's plan, in light of his perfect innocence, and in light of the truth of who he was. Well, as we look around, we see death and all the things that lead up to it and follow from it. Is death going to have the last word? When we go to the cemetery, when we say a final goodbye to a loved one we've lost, Is that the last word? No, it isn't. Christ is risen. The first fruits of those who sleep. He has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Your despair, your sorrow, your distress, your death, they are not the last word because Jesus has risen again. Amen.